If you were here last week, uh, we started a series called Summer Growth, where we're talking about intentionally growing through the summer. And we kind of kicked it off by talking about how before we can really even grow, we have to take a look at our environment to make sure that it is an environment that we want to grow in, that the soil that we are planted in is soil that we want to be planted in, that it's soil that we want to put down roots in. And so we talked about kind of taking a look at the environment around us for growth because what we know is that we were designed to grow. If you are a healthy human being, if you do nothing, your body will continue to grow, but it will grow in a certain level of health dependent on what you do to it and what you put in it and how much rest you give it and the things you do to it will affect the way you grow, that the conditions around you actually do affect how you grow. In fact, we were having this conversation just this week. There's 11 of us from Harbor leaving in three weeks to go to Nicaragua to do some work there. We're going to be building six houses for families in a barrio in Nicaragua. And we were so excited about this. We were going to be building three. And there was basically a company that came along and said, hey, if you can build six, we'll pay for six. And so our team, in just a matter of one week, we're going to build six houses for this barrio in Nicaragua. But we were kind of going through the priorities of how how and why we build the kinds of houses that we build. And one of the things that we talked about was that, that there, every level of the house that we build for these people is intentional. And that just the fact that these children will grow up on a concrete floor completely changes their life. That, that just by having a concrete floor instead of a dirt floor, the infant mortality rate goes down 50% which means that a baby that is born in one of these homes that we build has a 50% better chance of just living just because of the foundation that's in their house. But it's not just a matter of life or death. This concrete floor also actually affects the cognitive growth of a child, that not growing up in dirt and mud and sand actually allows their brain to develop more on track with how it should develop. See, the, the foundation that you have for growth matters. The foundation that you have for growth is significant to what you grow, and it matters. Even though you grow naturally, you have to be intentional about how you grow. But when we talk about growth, so often we kind of segment it into different sections. We, we might talk about our physical growth, and we might talk about our spiritual growth, and we might talk about our relational growth. And today, I want to talk about a primary factor of our relational growth, but before we even get to that, I want to make sure that we realize that the importance of our relational growth to our spiritual growth, that our relational growth, our interconnectedness one to another, that they're not just related, they are intimately connected, that we were actually created and designed to be connected to one another, that we were created and we were designed for relationship. And I love my family, and I love my friends, but if you know me, you know I also love being alone. I love being alone. For some of you, uh, no plans on a Friday night at home by yourself might be your nightmare. It's a dream for me. For some of you, sitting alone in a movie theater and watching a movie by yourself might sound strange and awkward. I love it. For some of you, a long car ride by yourself might sound lonely. It sounds refreshing to me. I love being alone. And, and that's why I am, if I'm quite honest, I'm a little bit troubled 
in the book of Genesis when the creation account is laid out because God is going through all of these things that he's creating and he's creating light and he's creating sound and he's creating earth and he's creating water and it kind of reaches this climactic moment where he creates humankind. He creates a man named Adam and and all along in the creation story, he creates something and he says, it's good. And then he creates something and he says, it's good. And then he creates something and he says, it's good. And then he creates Adam and shortly after he says, it is not good that man is alone. Now, this is curious to me because the Bible is clear that Adam's existence before anyone else is not necessarily an existence that we would consider alone. Because the Bible talks about Adam actually having fellowship and communion with God, that Adam actually walks through the garden with God. And I think sometimes we think that if we can get our relationship with God right, then we will be all right. That if we only get our relationship with God right, it's fine if we don't have any people in our lives. And yet we have this example of Adam who had a perfect, unbroken relationship with God. And God still looked at his condition and said, it is not good because he is alone. It is not good that he does not have other people in his life. A few years ago, my daughter, who was uh, just turning four at the time, she was playing in a room, and I wasn't home. My wife was in the kitchen doing something, and she, she heard a loud scream coming from the girl's bedroom. And as a parent, you learn to kind of delineate different types of screams. There are angry screams where there's fighting. There are dramatic screams where really nothing is going on. There are playful screams that sometimes are a little bit confusing because sometimes you're not sure whether they're actually playing or killing each other. It's not always totally clear, but there is a scream that is without a doubt a painful scream. You know something is wrong. You know something has happened. This was one of those screams, and she was holding her leg. She was crying. She was screaming. She was acting like something was wrong, but neither of our girls could quite explain to us what had happened. Our older daughter wasn't really looking. She just heard a sound, and then the next thing she knew, her younger sister was screaming and crying, and she couldn't bring herself to tell us what had happened, and so she kind of limped around the rest of the day and we kept an eye on it. She had a bruise on her leg and we kept an eye on it overnight. She went to sleep. And then the next morning she came out of her room, literally scooting on her behind, moving through the house, losing her hands to scoot herself through the house. And that was cause for concern. And so I ended up taking her to the emergency room and, and we went through the whole process of weighing in and taking all the vitals. And then the doctor came in and he was there to check out how she was. Now, what you need to know about Sophia is that she is very mild-mannered. She doesn't say much. She doesn't complain much. She, she apparently has a fairly high pain tolerance because she had not complained to us at all after this uh, incident. She had cried at the beginning of it, and she did kind of limp around, but she kept playing. She didn't complain. Nothing until the morning when she came out scooting. And even when she was scooting around on her behind, she didn't complain. She just acted like, I guess this is how I get around now. I guess this is the new way that I navigate the house. And so she went around for like a couple of hours before we could work it out to get a babysitter and do the things we needed to do to take her. And she didn't act like she was actually in any pain. So we really felt like taking her to the emergency room was really more of a precaution, but we thought it was odd that she was scooting around. So we took her. She hadn't said anything. She sits on the edge of the bed. The doctor comes in. And because she's a kid and because she can't communicate like super well her feelings and how she is, he has this chart and it has 10 emoji smiley faces on it, ranging from one that looks very excited to one that just looks devastatingly sad. And he says, could you please point to the smiley face that indicates your level of pain? 
And she immediately pointed to the most devastated looking face on the sheet. And I felt like the worst father in the world because I, I just immediately felt like I had to start explaining myself to this doctor. Like she, I pro, she, was not, she has not been crying. She has not been complaining. She, she has been scooting around on her bottom this morning. And we know that that is not normal. And that is why we're here. But she has not been in any way indicating to us that she was in pain. And this doctor, he, he kind of examined her, he kind of felt around her leg, and he said, I think there's a fracture right here, and now we're going to take an x-ray and see. And sure enough, there was a fracture exactly where he said there was a fracture. And so he explained to us that we were actually going to need to go see a specialist, that they couldn't put it in a cast that day. So he wrapped it in kind of like some gauze and a little plastic supportive thing, but he said, you need to see a specialist because this break is so close to the growth plate in the leg that we want to make sure that it heals properly. And so he said, she's going to have to have a much larger cast for this to heal, even though it's a small fracture, because if you don't heal the fracture, her leg will not grow properly. And I think for us to talk about growth, we have to acknowledge that if we ignore brokenness in our lives, we will inhibit growth in our lives. That, that if we don't pay attention to the areas in our lives, even if they are internal, that are broken and are fractured, that we will not grow in the way that God has designed us to grow. And you do not have to look far in our world today to realize that there are fractures and there is brokenness in our society. That, that at times it just seems something is off. That at times it just seems like we keep repeating the same mistakes. That something is not quite growing right. I don't, I don't know about you, but I've been just completely grieved by the last few weeks of what's gone on in our world. We have seen in the last three weeks dozens of lives lost for various inexplainable reasons. We have seen people killed in a grocery store because of the color of their skin. We've seen people killed in church because of their race. We've seen innocent children killed in school. We should not live in a world where anyone should wonder if the color of their skin is going to get them killed at the grocery store. We should not live in a world where people wonder if they're safe to go to church. We should not live in a world where parents have to wonder if their kids are going to come home from school. Our world is fractured. There is brokenness that is evident. And because we don't pay attention to the brokenness, we do not grow beyond it. It was Almost 10 years ago, I remember because the day that our daughter Sophia was born, ten, almost 10 years ago this fall, I remember coming out to the waiting room to let everyone know who was waiting that she had been born, that, that it had happened, she had been born, we had been there through the night, and now she was here, and I, and I stepped out, and I told everyone, and I got a glimpse of the TV, and that very day had been the shooting at Sandy Hook Elementary, and I remember nearly 10 years ago feeling that pull of this weird sensation that here we are celebrating new life. Here we are celebrating this child that we've brought into the world while there are other parents now grieving the lives of their children lost. And then 10 years later, we are still bumping up against the same things because we do not acknowledge the brokenness. So we do not grow past it. We do not acknowledge the brokenness that causes our division, and so we do not grow past it. And, and, and in these moments, I know that everybody is kind of wondering, what is the solution? What is next? What steps do we take? 
And everybody has an opinion on what it should be. And luckily, we have Facebook, so everybody knows what everyone's opinion on what it should be is. Because God forbid we don't know what everybody thinks should happen next. But we all have an opinion on what should happen next. And there is not necessarily one answer, but we're all asking the question of what should we do? What shouldn't we do? What should we say? What shouldn't we say? What should we One characteristic we not post. But if there's one characteristic that I think would contribute to the healing of the brokenness in our world, it would be if we grew in this one trait, and it's empathy. Empathy. If we grew in empathy, to grow beyond the fractures and division that breed the hate and violence we've seen, we have to grow in empathy. And empathy is unique because it's not like sympathy. Sympathy, you feel for someone. Empathy, you actually feel with someone. And there is a difference between feeling for and feeling with. In fact, empathy is actually defined as the capacity to feel or understand what another person is experiencing from within their frame of reference. The capacity to place oneself in another's position. Empathy requires capacity. It requires you to grow. Like if you do not have the capacity to feel what someone else feels, to step into their shoes and experience what they experience, to see from their vantage point, it is time to grow in empathy in your life. And if I'm quite honest, this idea of empathy, it seems like a place where God would not be that helpful. And I know that's a weird thing to say in church, but if empathy is the idea of stepping into someone's shoes and living in their reality, well, God lives outside of our reality. God lives outside and above our reality. He does not live within space and time, and we do. And so for God to actually experience our reality, for God to actually be able to even identify with the idea of empathy, God would somehow have to step out of heaven and into earth and into humanity and actually walk among us and experience life among us, which is exactly what he did through Jesus. That, that, that God is actually a God who stepped out of space, who stepped out of eternity and stepped into time so that he could walk among us and experience what we experience. See, if you're someone who has questioned or is wondering or is searching for God, the thing that separates God from the other gods that people serve, from the other gods that people look to, is that there is one God who actually stepped into humanity. That there is one God who actually chose when he didn't have to, to step into time so that he could identify with the pain and the suffering that you're walking through. That there is a God who, when he sees your pain, when he sees your suffering, when he sees your questions, he has actually walked in your shoes. He has actually experienced what you are experiencing. See, we, we so often want to be understood. We hate to be misunderstood. And, and there is only truly one God who understands you. There is only one God who truly made the choice to step into your shoes so that he could understand you. John chapter 1 verse 14 says that the word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. Why? 
Hebrews 4.15 says, For we do not have a high priest who is unable to empathize with our weaknesses, but we have one who has been tempted in every way, just as we are, yet he did not sin. Jesus stepped into time, stepped into humanity, so that he could empathize with and then deal with our spiritual condition. But isn't it interesting that God, when he saw the the spiritual need of mankind, when he saw the lack in our hearts, when he saw that there was a need for a savior, that his solution was to become more human. Like, You would think in that moment his solution would be to use his power or his divinity to somehow override humanity in a greater way, and yet he chose to press in to humanity. He chose to see a spiritual problem and send a human solution, and he still does the same thing today, and that human solution is you, and it's me, and it's everyone who claims to follow him and believe in him and to walk in the steps that he laid out for us. See, I think one of the problems is that oftentimes when we face a problem, when we don't know what to say, when we don't know what to do, we decide to become more spiritual. And I believe in the power of prayer. I believe in the power of believing for God, but we also cannot forsake our humanity in moments like this. We also cannot forget to step into the shoes of the people who are experiencing these tragedies and see it from their vantage point. Perhaps the most impactful verse in Scripture is also the shortest verse in Scripture. And it shows Jesus in his most empathetic moment in the book of John chapter 11, where it simply says, Jesus wept. It simply says, Jesus wept. And if you know the context, then you know that Jesus is told that one of his good friends is very sick and nearly at death. And beginning in verse 4 of chapter 11 in the book of John, it says, When he heard this, Jesus said, This sickness will not end in death. No, it is for God's glory, so that God's Son may be glorified through it. Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus, yet When he heard that Lazarus was sick, he stayed where he was two more days. Now, I don't know about you, but there have been moments in my life where I feel like Jesus should have showed up sooner. There have been moments in my life where it feels like God is late. There have been moments in my life where it feels like God is running behind. And when you think that someone doesn't show up, you assume that they don't care. I mean, showing up is kind of the basic ground level of care, is just showing up and being there. And it feels like in this moment that Jesus doesn't even have the decency to show up. But then it says after two days, Lazarus dies. And then Jesus decides to head to Lazarus's home. And it says, beginning in verse 17, on arrival, Jesus found that Lazarus had already been in the tomb four days. Bethany was less than two miles from Jerusalem, and many Jews had come to Martha and Mary to comfort them in the loss of their brother. When Martha heard that Jesus was coming, she went out to meet him, but Mary stayed at home. Lord, Martha said to Jesus, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. But I know that even now God will give you whatever you ask. Jesus said to her, your brother will rise again. Martha answered, I know he will rise again in the resurrection at the last day. 
Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me will live even though he dies. And whoever lives and believes in me will never die. Do you believe in me? So in this moment, Martha runs desperately out to Jesus. And it feels like he's too late. Even when he says Lazarus is going to live, she says, yes, I know in the future he's going to live. I know in the future you're going to work this out. What she doesn't know is that Jesus has already said this will not end in death. Jesus has already said he's coming, bearing the solution to her problem. Picking up in verse 32, it says, when Mary reached the place where Jesus was in Psalm, she fell at his feet and said, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. When Jesus saw her weeping and the Jews had come along with her also weeping, he was deeply moved in spirit and troubled. Where have you laid him? He asked. Come and see, Lord, they replied. Jesus wept. Then the Jews said, see how he loved him. Notice that Jesus sees Martha weeping, Mary weeping, and he sees the Jews weeping, and then he joins in their weeping. Now, this is interesting because Jesus knows what he's about to do. In fact, at this point, twice already, Jesus has said this is not going to end in death. He has every intention of raising Lazarus from the dead. And so in this moment, Jesus had a solution that he could have offered. In fact, when he saw the weeping of the sisters, when he saw the weeping of the Jews, he could have said, stop weeping. It's going to be okay. I'm here. I'm going to raise Lazarus from the dead. It's all going to be okay. It's all going to, be work out, it's all going to work out fine. There is going to be a solution. But instead, he wept with them. Even knowing the solution, even knowing that hope was coming, he took the time to weep with them. I think what's significant about this moment is that Jesus stepped into this moment of devastation. He stepped into this moment of loss. He stepped into this moment of sadness. He stepped into this moment of death, and he felt it before he fixed it. He felt it before he brought the solution. He, he actually allowed himself to feel the sadness of what was going on in the situation and to weep with those who were weeping. And what's interesting in this moment is that it says the Jews say, see how he loved him. See how he loved Lazarus. But the truth is that they misunderstand this moment because Jesus knows Lazarus's fate. He knows that he's going to raise Lazarus from the dead. Jesus is not crying over his dead friend. He's crying over his sad friends. He's crying with those who are feeling the loss in that moment. He is feeling what they are feeling. He is experiencing what they are experiencing. And so he weeps with those who are weeping. See, I think so often we are quick to offer our solutions before we've taken time to actually feel the pain. Where we're quick to offer our opinions before we've actually taken time to feel the pain. We're quick to repost the memes before we've actually felt the pain. And see, I think sometimes we have a low capacity for empathy because we live in one of the most narcissistic times in human history. We live in one of the most self-centered times in human history. And so it's hard for us to see from anyone else's shoes because we believe that we have the right opinion. We believe that we have the right solution. We believe that we have the right way to go. And so we place our priority not on getting in someone else's shoes, but getting someone else in our shoes. 
We, we, we put all of the focus on how can I get someone to my side? How can I get someone to understand my point of view? And it's because we have been trained that our opinion is right. Our, our friends believe the same opinion that we do. The, the news that we watch confirms the opinion we have. The social media that we follow affirms the opinion that we have. And so we've got to be right. And so we've got to get everyone else in our shoes. But empathy requires some things from you that are kind of countercultural in these moments. If you look in the book of Matthew, chapter 12, beginning in verse 9, there's this moment where Jesus is heading to the temple and it's on the Sabbath and and there are some religious leaders there who have some questions for Jesus. And the religious leaders are always trying to trap Jesus. They're always trying to make it seem like Jesus doesn't know what he's talking about, like Jesus doesn't know what he's doing. And so they, they come to him and they're basically asking him if it's okay to pick herds of grain on the Sabbath. Jesus is walking with his disciples and some of his disciples, as they're walking, they reach and they pick off some grain and they begin to eat it. And the Pharisees think this is a moment where they can trap Jesus. And so they ask him if that is lawful. And Jesus says, beginning in verse three, haven't you read what David did when he and his companions were hungry? He entered the house of God and he and his companions ate the consecrated bread, which was not lawful for them to do, but only for the priests. Or haven't you read in the law that on the Sabbath, the priests in the temple desecrate the day and yet are innocent? I tell you that one greater than the temple is here. If you had known what these words mean, I desire mercy, not sacrifice, you would not condemn the innocent. For the Son of Man is the Lord of the Sabbath. Beginning in verse 9 again, he says, Going on from that place, he went into their synagogue, and a man with a shriveled hand was there, looking for a reason to accuse Jesus. They asked him, is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath? He said to them, if any of you has a sheep and it falls into a pit on the Sabbath, will you not take hold of it and lift it out? How much more valuable is a man than a sheep? Therefore, it is lawful to do good on the Sabbath. Then he said to the man, stretch out your hand. So he stretched it out and it was completely restored, just as sound as the other. See, what's illustrated in this moment is a common conversation between Jesus and the Pharisees. The Pharisees are always asking if something is lawful or if something is right. They're always concerned with the do's and the don'ts and the rules and the regulations. And in this moment, Jesus chooses to elevate the conversation. And you're going to have to learn to elevate the conversation if you're actually going to have empathy. You're going to have to learn to move beyond just rules, regulations, do's and don'ts, what's right, what's wrong in this moment, and elevate the conversation to love. Because see, what Jesus does in this moment is he says, I don't care as much about being right as I do about doing good. The Pharisees in this moment, they just want to be right. They want to be right in this moment, but Jesus' only concern is for the hurting, and how can I do good for the hurting? And if you notice in this moment, it says, looking for a reason to accuse Jesus. They asked him, is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath? I can tell you that if you are trying to use someone else's pain to win an argument, you are not operating in empathy. In this moment, the, the Pharisees, the religious leaders, they see the same hurting man before them as Jesus. And they see it as an opportunity not to do good, but as an opportunity to win an argument. 
as an opportunity to be right. We have to be willing to elevate the conversation beyond just what's right and wrong and move into what good we can do. If you're going to operate in empathy, empathy requires you to elevate the conversation and it also requires adaptability. And this basically means that the correct response is not always the correct response every time. That sometimes you're going to have to adapt to the situation. And the Apostle Paul was incredible about this. In 1 Corinthians 9, verse 19 through 23, he says, Though I am free and belong to no one, I have made myself a slave to everyone to win as many as possible. To the Jews, I became like a Jew to win Jews. To those under the law, I became like one under the law, though I myself am not under the law, so as to win those under the law. To those not having the law, I became like one not having the law, so as to win those not having the law. To the weak, I became weak to win the weak. I have become all things to all people so that by all means possible, I might save some. I do this for the sake of the gospel that I may share in its blessings. It's Paul in Romans twelve fifteen that writes, rejoice with those who rejoice and weep with those who weep. And then finally, in 1 Thessalonians 5, verse 14, he says, Friends, you must warn lazy people that they should work. If people are afraid, help them be brave. If they are weak, take care of them, but be patient with everyone. Notice that he gives different solutions for different people's status. That, that for the lazy, he says, tell them they should work. Not everybody wants to hear that they should work, but sometimes the solution that somebody needs in their life is they need some, to do some work. They have some work to do. They have some progress to make. But then he says to the afraid, give them courage. To the afraid, be brave for them. See, sometimes we see someone that's maybe not doing anything and we might assume that they are lazy and we might tell them to get to work when actually what they are is afraid. They don't need to be told to get to work. They need to be told that you are with them, that you are for them, that you have enough courage and bravery for both of them. It's not the same solution for every problem. And then finally to the weak, he says, take care of them. So you could look at someone who is not doing anything and you could assume that they are lazy or you could assume that they are afraid or you could assume that they are weak, but you actually have to step into their shoes to know the proper response in that moment. You actually have to see from their vantage point to know what they're going through, to know how you should respond. And then finally, empathy requires action. It requires action. This is what Jesus did for us ultimately on the cross, that he stepped into humanity, but then he took action once he stepped into humanity. In 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 21, it says, For to this you have been called, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example so that you might follow in his steps. He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth, when he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live in righteousness. By his wounds, we have been healed. See, Jesus took action for our sins. He didn't just step into humanity and feel what we feel and experience what he experienced. He then took the step of actually taking action in that moment. 
He actually took the step of taking on our sin, bearing our sin, bearing our shame when he didn't have to, and taking it on himself. If you want to be more like God, if you want to be more like Jesus, if you want to follow him more closely, be willing to stand in the shoes of someone who is suffering. Be willing to stand in the shoes of someone who is experiencing pain. Be willing to stand in the shoes who doesn't see the world like you see the world. Be willing to stand in their shoes and see the world from their vantage point. And know that you serve a God that whatever you're going through, that he has experienced it and he has felt it. And that because he experienced it and because he felt it and because he then went on the cross, that you have the power to overcome it just like he did. That because he walked in your shoes, because he empathized with your condition and then overcame it, that you can do the same thing. I think just kind of one final bonus of what empathy requires of you is that empathy requires intercession. And intercession is prayer on behalf of another person. It's literally empathy in prayer form. And this is no more clearly modeled than Jesus on the cross when he's dying, bearing the weight of our sin and of our shame. And his prayer in that moment is not, God, deliver me from this pain. His prayer in this moment is not, God, take me out of this situation. His prayer in that moment is, Father, forgive them for they don't know what they're doing. That even as he's suffering on the cross, even as he's dealing with our sin and our shame, he's still standing in our shoes and seeing from our perspective and saying they don't know what they're doing. Forgive them. Even at the moment where he most could have said, this is not worth the price. At the moment where he most could have said, I want to tap out of this. I don't want to do this. I don't want to carry through with this. The weight is too much. The pain is too much. That he still chose to stay standing in our shoes and to say, Father, forgive them. That he prayed on their behalf, on our behalf.